Hello fellow Redbirds, welcome to Bird Fans Forever podcast number 47. Please follow us on our at Bird Fans Forever Twitter account to be notified of our latest podcast videos and participate in our fun polls. Also go to our website www.birdfansforever.com where you can find a list of our previous podcasts. Finally, go to Bird Fans Forever on YouTube and slam dunk that subscribe button. YouTube has our archive of classic Redbird games that we've obtained from so many kind Redbird fans who shared their video libraries with us. We're still adding to our list of online games, so head over to YouTube site and find an old game to watch. And we just wanted to say a few words here to help out our Redbirds. Don't forget the Illinois Wesleyan exhibitions are this Sunday, October 29th. Go see both games at SefQ Arena with the women's game at 1 p.m. and the men's game following shortly thereafter. Go get your Empower the Nest beer from Keg Grove Brewing Company. We'll make sure that they kick up production for the beer when this video goes viral. Additionally, if you're looking for a way to support the ISU basketball Redbirds in a more direct way, reach out to the EmpowerTheNest.com to join the Men's Basketball Center Court Club. Uh, we're very excited for our guest today, who's a leader in women's basketball both at Illinois State and at the national level. She was head coach for women's basketball at Illinois State University for 28 seasons from 1970 to 1999. She was three-time Rawlings Missouri Valley Coach of the Year. She was the first president of the Women's Basketball Association in 1982 and was a three-time president of the association. Finally, she testified at the United States Congressional hearings on Title IX. Welcome to Bird Fans Forever, Dr. Jill Hutchison. Hello and welcome to episode 47 with Jill. Jill Hutchison was the coach at Illinois State Women's Basketball. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you. I'm excited to meet you guys. This is awesome. All right. So we use these, we always start with how'd you get to ISU? So we're going simple. That's an easy story. I went to ISU in uh, 68 to do my master's degree because ISU had uh, a sort of an intercollegiate program for women. I say sort of because it wasn't anything like it is now. And it was one of only about three schools in the country that had any program. And they had telemetry equipment. And I wanted to do my thesis using telemetry equipment. And I only found two schools in the country that had telemetry. So ISU became uh, my first choice. My high school teacher in Albuquerque, New Mexico, was an ISU-NU grad. And she had always wanted me to go to ISU. So. That was a huge motivator to get me there. All right, so you graduated your master's in 69, and you become, yep. you become coach. Who hires you? Um, you know, at the time, we were still in physical education. It wasn't okay. a separate athletic department. So Phoebe Scott was the head of the department, and Lori Mabry was in charge of the sports program. And so the two of them hired me. All right, so then let's go into the 72 season, right? That's the season where the first women's NCAA Final Four is held in Horton Fieldhouse. Talk about that, and then talk about the start of Title IX, right? So I think it's actually Title IX and then the Final Four. I think I got it backwards, but the dyslexic guy is going to do that. And then we'll roll into the AIAW. I think I got those letters right. It's always hard. That was good, John. Yeah, you did good. I'm, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, in 69 and 70, 
there was an NIT for women's basketball, and it was hosted at Westchester. And they invited 16 teams from around the country. So it's purely invitational. Then in 70, they had a second one in Northeastern, in Boston. Again, it was pretty much invitational. We got invited to the second one, and uh, the team that went there, I mean, it was like life-changing to those kids. Yeah. Then yeah. in 71, the third Invitational went to Culloway, North Carolina. And these were all just, uh, there was no qualification. You just, you know, if you had a great season and somebody heard about you, you got in. It wasn't nationally representative or anything like that. So in 1972, AIAW was formed, okay? okay. And that was the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. That organization was a parallel to NCAA. Okay. And why did we have it? Because NCAA didn't want to have anything to do with women's sports. They were just right. a, um, an extra expense, more time, more effort. They really didn't think it was going anywhere. And in all honesty, we weren't at the level we are now, so it wasn't really well respected. Right. So... <clears throat> AIW was formed, and it was led by women and coached by women. Back in 72, 95% of the administrators and coaches were all women. 90% of the women didn't have any training. They just kind of learned as they went along, right. you know, because they, they hadn't been coached. They'd never been administrators before. And all of a sudden, they're in this role. Well, we had some great leaders, to say the least. And ISU was blessed, blessed with some great leaders. Phoebe Scott <clears throat> was the chair of the PE department. And she was uh, a national leader that really got AIW started. And people forget about her. I mean, she just, think about it. That wasn't popular back then. Right. The guys yeah. hated us. That it was just an extra issue for college administrators. And here's Phoebe sticking her neck out. And then Lori Mabry, who became the first at, first and only athletic, athletic director for women at ISU. And she was one of the 10 AIAW presidents. So we were blessed with great leaders. So AIW starts and Women's basketball was obviously uh, a priority because it was the most, it was the highest participation sport for women in college sports. Okay. And so right then we went from what they called sports days to intercollegiate sports. Sports right. days, people don't understand this, in the 60s we played these sports days where maybe 10 schools would go to one site and you would bring your team, you'd play maybe four modified games. Modified being like um, four running 10-minute quarters or something like that. If you weren't playing, you were officiating. Sometimes you were even coaching your own team. And <clears throat> then it was all about socialization and getting along and you know all that kind of stuff. And so after every sports day, we had punching cookies and we interacted with all the opponents and had a swell time. And we weren't supposed to keep track of winning and losing and stuff like that. We'd get on the bus and say, okay, we won every game we got. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
when AIW came around and Title IX allowed it, then that opened the door for intercollegiate sports for women. And when I first came to ISU, guys, we had four teams in women's basketball, four teams in volleyball, three teams in softball. I mean, we had 800 kids, females, participating in sports yeah. at ISU in the 60s and early 70s. It was a phenomenal program. So, you know, we hosted, long forgotten thing, we hosted the first national swimming meet in McCormick Hall. Now, if you've ever been in McCormick Hall, it's a 25-yard pool with about seven or eight lanes, I guess. I mean, it's itty-bitty. But we ended up hosting the first national for, for AIW there. I asked uh, Phoebe Scott and Lori Mayer, I said, hey, listen, they're going to try and have a first national basketball. What do you guys think about hosting it? Well, it took the whole staff of 60 PE women to put it on, and they all agreed, okay, let's take a shot at it. And so we did. We hosted the first national AIW tournament at ISU in 1972 in Horton Fieldhouse. Okay, that was the first time we got to play in Horton Fieldhouse. Wow. Women, women were in wow. McCormick Hall. Um, let's see, I, I think Horton was built in 63. 63, yep. The guys moved from McCormick into Horton. Yes. Well, the women stayed in McCormick. So we played in McCormick in the big gym, small gym, whatever. And right. 72, we hosted nationals. We'd get to play in Horton Fieldhouse. It was a big deal. Yeah, um, yeah. So we had to figure out how to qualify, how to get through. And, and i tell you what, NIW had a really good organizational framework. It was all state, regional, and national. So we had to win state to go on to regional, to go on to national. Now think about it. What if now, instead of conferences, we, we played state competition? The rivalries, the, the, the crowds, everything would be phenomenal. If we right. played U of I and we played Northern and all those, that's what we did in AIW. And it was great. And then if you, if you won in, in state, you'd play people from Ohio, like Ohio State, Iowa, uh, Indiana. But they were all geographical rivalries that people could relate to. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things that I thought was really strong about AIW. And AIW lasted for 10 years. We went from a 16-team tournament in one site like we had in 72 in Horton Fieldhouse to a final four with NBC television coverage in 81 and 82. Wow. So it just kept growing and growing and growing and everybody kept thinking, well, you know, <clears throat> women's basketball isn't going to make it. NCAA didn't want to have anything to do with us. We were more of a um, baggage than we were a plus. Right. And so until we got to that final four stage and we started getting television coverage and we started having a following, then all of a sudden women's basketball became attractive. And <clears throat> there was a big battle and it was guys versus women. And that was the sad part for NCAA to take over 
um, AIAW meant that on individual campuses, now think about this, this happened at ISU and every place else in the country. Okay, so we're going to merge programs. Right. We merge programs, who's the AD? A man. It's always the guy, yep. right? So after 10 years of women running their own programs and having their own control, all of a sudden the men were in control of the women's programs. Yep. Women administrators were relegated to associate positions, if that. Um, and in the NCAA, coaches have no vote on any committee. They still don't, never did. So there's no voice for college women coaches in the right. NCAA after having total control of our sport in AIW. I mean, right. total control. So that was the big change, and it it became a big issue, guys versus gals, which was unfortunate. Right. And it's taken us it's taken us a good twenty years to kind of smooth those surfaces and play in the same sandbox. So John Diane and I arrived on campus in the fall of '84, and this is how naive I was. I thought Illinois State was part of the Missouri Valley Conference, and what I didn't realize was that we were also part of another conference, you know, the Gateway Conference. And I mean, I never understood how there was two conferences, and the teams weren't even the same. Half the teams from the Gateway were from the Midcon, Midcon uh, Conference, and, and some of the NBC teams didn't even participate in, in the Gateway. So, Jill, Jill, can you tell us how the Gateway, like, you know, we joined in, how that came to uh, form? Yeah, interesting story, Steve. Um, when the NCAA absorbed the AIAW, a lot of schools, um, a lot of conferences embraced the women's programs, like the Big Ten and the Pac-10 and a lot of the Power Fives now. <clears throat> but the Valley didn't want to have anything to do with the women. And you know, they made a mistake because the women leaders in the Valley were probably some of the strongest leaders in the country at the time. You know, Lori Mabry at ISU, Charlotte West at Southern Illinois, um, Mo Bell at Northern, I mean, although Northern wasn't in our conference, but <clears throat> those women just jumped right into it. So if the Valley doesn't want us, fine, let's start our own conference. And that's exactly what they did. They started the Gateway Conference, and you're right, it included some schools that are in the Valley. It was kind of a, a blend of AIW, which was state, and the Valley. So we had schools like Eastern and Western from the AIW days, and then we had schools like Drake in Northern Iowa from the Valley. So, schools that chose to join us, we ended up with a 10-school conference, and for 82, 10 years, the Gateway was the women's conference for those schools. Once again, they were female administrators. Patty Viverito was our first and only commissioner. She is still the commissioner of the Gateway football conference. Right. Oh, wow. And, yeah, she... She was an associate for the Valley, but uh, retired from that a year ago and now is still running the Gateway 
I mean the the Valley football. But those ten schools came together. They had unbelievably strong leadership, and we had good teams in the Gateway at the time. And there were several teams that were qualifying nationally in several sports. Um, we were lucky. We were on a big run in the 80s. We had some tremendous athletes, and we were one of those groups that that played postseason quite a bit. But Northern Iowa women's volleyball and ISU softball was just as good, and so was Missouri State. But um, it wasn't until 1992, or 90, I can't remember to be quite honest, that the Valley decides, well, it was really the presidents in the Valley who got tired of having two sets of operating procedures and having two sets of athletic departments and all of that stuff. So the Valley absorbed the gateway and the, the schools that had uh, Valley teams obviously went to the Valley. Those others went to like the Ohio Valley and, and you know, some of the other conferences. So <clears throat> it, was, it was really a factor that the Valley didn't want the women and the women were fine with that and they just developed their own conference. <laughs> The other thing the Valley didn't want was football, okay? And, and, and That's football, exactly right. And football ends up, ironically, right? If you think like the number one men's sport But football is, football. is not in... I know, but there were... But that's two different... Diana, two different Valley conferences. It's in the Valley itself. It's in a separate... It's called the Missouri Valley Football Conference. It's yeah. not and the so same conference. It is... Totally not. It is not administered. In '83 and '83 and '84, there was a Missouri Valley Conference football in, in Wichita State for football. for football. Okay, '85 comes around and they change D1 and 1A and all that wonderful stuff. So football right. is going through a change, and the Missouri Valley drops football. Okay, right. and yes. They moved to the gateway. So the Missouri Valley didn't want football. Okay. 100%. They picked up. They still don't want it today. The other thing that came out of it was there was teams like Southwest Missouri State, you mentioned Northern Iowa. They were not part of the Missouri Valley, but they were part of the Gateway Conference. And then eventually they became part of the Missouri Valley Conference. So it was a good point, but, Steve. You did your homework, Philip. Yeah, well, it's okay. Well, I was naive when I went there, but the, I just assumed it was the same conference, right? I mean, high school, same conference, all that stuff, Big Ten, Pac-10, whatever. And, and then you show up, and it's like, here's this other conference, and it's made up of different teams. It was, it was strange. You know, to me, it was strange. Yeah. Well, I get the sense now, and this is just my gut, I don't know this, but I think the Valley would probably welcome having football. But because it's a separate conference now, it's going to take a lot to change that. And as long as Patty Viverito is the commissioner for the football conference, I don't see that changing. Yeah. 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 And obviously, it's probably the best football conference in 1AA. So, you know, oh, yeah. the best of the yeah, mid-majors. Yeah. Without a doubt. So, so the other thing, I show up. In, in 8045. So I, I would say this is 
the best basketball era. Okay, so not, not just men's basketball, but women's basketball. So in a three-year period, the men's team goes to the NCAA three years, the women's team goes two years, okay? So it was an awesome era for, for Illinois State and, and, and basketball. And Pettin always likes to talk about how they play a tough schedule compared to the teams. Now, but I'm going to read you, John, you, you better listen to this. Okay, so this is the 1984-85 <laughs> non-conference schedule. I don't know who made this up. Like, Jill, if you were just a glutton for punishment or if someone didn't like you, put this, but here was the schedule. At Wisconsin, you win. Okay, then you play Ohio State and Cincinnati on the road. You lost those games. Then you come home and win three games. Kansas State, Louisville, Illinois. At Iowa, at Arizona State, at Arizona. Who puts a schedule together like that? That's unbelievable. <laughs> All power five. All power five. <laughs> Let me tell you, I, I was reprimanded more than once by uh, ADs telling me I was really a dumb idiot. So, <laughs> But I really felt like the only way for a gateway team to get a good seed in nationals was to play a national level, you know, schedule. And I felt like we had the players to do it, and we did right then. So, um... Yeah, we scheduled really tough, and uh, <clears throat> it was before the Power Fives became Power Fives. Power Fives, yeah. So, you know, we were still competitive with those programs. That didn't change probably until early 90s. And then there was a big swing because of scholarships and, and all the pluses in the Power Fives, and it made it really tough uh, recruiting against them. But in the 70s and 80s, Guys, we could compete with anybody, and we were able to get the best kids out of Illinois and the Midwest, and they could play. They could play now if they had to. <laughs> well, they got you ready for the regular season because you guys only lost uh, one game. Against, I think it was against Drake, whatever. So you come out, and then you get to draw Louisiana Tech, which is perennial powerhouse, right, in the NCAA. Do you want to talk about that game a little bit? Can't even remember the score of that game. My players probably remember it better than I do. I'm terrible in the details. Jill, yeah. hey Jill, the funny thing is, as a player, I didn't play for you, but I played around you. As a player, I don't remember the scores either. The fans remember the scores like it's, it's yesterday, right? They'll come up to me all the time and say, well, do you remember this game and blah, 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 right? They're doing the same thing to you that they do to, right? And you coached, you know, is it almost a thousand games? And so, yeah. how are you going to remember one game? So, Steve, man, you got to help her out here. Come on. Yeah, give me a clue. It wasn't close, but to me, it was more about playing, you know, one one of the front powers. I think they, they were number one seed or something like that. But you guys they were the uh, number one seed in the West. Yep, that year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Louisiana Tech back then. Well, you were the eight seed, Jill. So here, Jill, I'll help you out. There's an assist from the big man. It doesn't happen very often. Illinois State fifty seventh. <laughs> Louisiana Louisiana Tech eighty one. They were the number one seed in the West, the Midwest Regional. You were the number eight seed. Yeah. That sounds real familiar. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I, I'm thinking there were only 32 teams in the tournament back then, too, and not 64. Correct, for, the feet positive, for women's, but I yes. I think that's true. So, um, but Tech was great. I'm not sure if, you know, you've heard of Kim Mulkey, who's now at LSU and won nationals last year. Kim was point guard for La Tech. And, yep. I mean, they had a powerhouse of players. They were had two or three Olympians all the time and national players of the year. And, I mean, they were flat good. We we didn't have the size to go up against them. I thought we had the guards, but we didn't really have enough size to compete at that level. Um, but someplace in then, in there, I can't remember what year it was, we were in NCAA and, um, oh God, second round, we went to, first round we went to Texas and beat Texas on their home floor. And then we lost at Tennessee, but you know, if you're going to try and play at that level, you got to play your season at that level. And that's what it was all about. Amen. We had kids who could compete there. So that was awesome. Well, here's something you did that season that the men's team's never done. He beat you a bye 76 72. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we beat them more than once, to tell you the truth. Yes, team. you have. That's always a game we like to win. Even back then, when, when it wasn't Power Five, that's a team we wanted to beat, without a doubt. All right, earlier you talked about recruiting and playing the Power Fives in the 80s. So let's go back into the difference between recruiting of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Yeah, it's definitely a progression. Um, back in the 70s, most kids that played college sports were physical education majors because that was their only avenue to get involved. And ISU had eight hundred women physical education majors in the 70s. That was a huge program and kids came here just so they could play. And the fact that we had four teams made it even more attractive because it it kind of accommodated like 40 or 50 kids. Yeah. yeah. So in, in the 70s, we rarely, I mean, you couldn't even, it wasn't legal to recruit. So we just took whoever came and at the time, because the physical education program was so good, we had the best athletes in the state. I mean, I'm not kidding. They were talented, they were athletic, they had a passion to play. That was probably the biggest thing. They just wanted to compete and they wanted to have the opportunity. It was like somebody opened a, a box of candy and they just couldn't quit eating it. I mean, they were just having a blast. I'm not kidding. It, it was the best thing since peanut butter. So it wasn't until later in the late 70s, early 80s, and now we started having, well, Title IX opened the door for scholarships. There right. were no scholarships for women until Title IX, and ISU didn't offer a scholarship to a female until 76. So it took us four years to even process that. Pat McKenzie was our first scholarship recipient at ISU, and she was a basketball player. She was from Sterling High School. Um, her dad was a coach, great player, ended up playing in Europe. Well, she played, she tried to play in some, uh, 
newly formed pro leagues in the 70s and early 80s, which went to pot. They were terrible. She went to Europe, married a French man, and the rest is history. But <clears throat> so that started recruiting. And in the early 80s, we really started recruiting. We used to be able to bring kids to campus, like in summer camps and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, Kathy Boswell was an Olympian. She was also uh, an All-American. She came to ICU because she attended a camp on campus when she was a sophomore. And Charlotte Lewis, our other Olympian from the 76 Olympic team, was her camp counselor. And she just thought that was the greatest thing going. So she decided to graduate early from high school and come to ISU. I worked her family really hard to make sure <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that was, that was great. But, uh, you know, there were a bunch of kids during that period that would just come and walk on, and we'd have, we could give them tryouts. I mean, we could have them in the gym, give them some drills and see if they could play. That's what happened right. to Marla Moppin, who was one of our best centers ever. And um, she played with Boz, and they had a great career. So <clears throat> it kept growing, and we kept having to recruit more and more and go out. And then as the conferences, the PEP, the, the Power Fives got stronger, yeah. They started recruiting more, and so they started filtering off some of our kids. And, you know, by the time we get to the late 80s, early 90s, it, it was just a, it was a battle to get the yeah. good kids. Yeah. We still got, you know, Miss Basketball in Illinois for the first two or three years of the 90s. Um, and we got all the first team and conference kids and stuff like that. <clears throat> but other schools would start getting other kids outside of Illinois and outside of the Midwest. And so it got more and more competitive. By the late 90s, it was a totally different story. The Power Fives had better facilities. Their women were having better opportunities. They could compete at a higher level, and that made it more and more difficult. We kept trying to schedule at that level, but if we lost, that was a kicker because, you know, that would come back and bite us. Yeah. But um, Kristen Gillespie is one of the best recruiters we've ever had. I swear to God. She's gotten <laughs> the newcomer of the year four out of her six years here. Yep. Now, that's pretty dadgum impressive. That's awesome. She, she yep. took a team from 8-23 and 23 to two conference championships. Yep. I mean, and she had the player of the year in the Valley and Paige Robinson last year. I mean, she has recruited her tail off, and she's just got a nice knack of connecting with kids and her, her staff. They make it a, a team effort. So they've done a super job, to be quite honest. That is awesome. Yep. Love watching the women play. I got season tickets. Just moved back last December, so I have been going to the games, and it's awesome. That's awesome. Steve, question? Here we go. Let's talk about some of the differences uh, between the men's basketball and the women's basketball game. And, and one of the things I want to talk about is the three-point shot. So I think both impacted the men's game and the women's game equally, but not necessarily the same way. And in fact, in the men's game, 
you see a lot of poor shots, unless you're watching like Gonzaga, right, which really runs a nice flow and efficient thing. You see a lot of poor shots. Where in the women's game, it's the the, the, the offensive sets are, are run, you know, more precise and stuff like that. And the three-point shot has really opened up the floor and that inside game and, and it's really helpful from an offensive standpoint, I think. You're right on, Steve. The men's game is a power game. It's played above the rim. The women's game is a finesse game. It's played on the floor. And those two significant differences change how we coach the games. So <clears throat> I really think, by and large, females tend to be better ball handlers. Part of the reason that that happens Back in 82, we changed the rules for the women's game to use the smaller ball. And it was based totally on the hand size and the ability of women to control the ball. And it was hoped when we changed the rules. I, I was chair of the rules committee for about a 10 year period. And we had hoped when we went to that smaller ball it's one inch smaller in diameter and one inch smaller in circumference. We thought that the women could control it better and we thought we'd have better scoring, which obviously is what the fans want to see. So if your hand hits, fits the ball better, you can shoot it better. Amen. Yep. So <clears throat> it didn't make a significant difference at the beginning, but when we went to that three-point shot, I think it did because Females, because they aren't a power game and they can't dunk it very few, then they've got to learn good technique. Watch women shoot the ball. I mean, they shoot the ball with a good technique. A lot of guys have side spin on it. It's horrible, yes. It's terrible and how the freaking ball goes in the hole is beyond me sometimes because they, they don't have a good technique. They've just done that technique so long, it, it works for them. And yeah. that's the bottom line. But women had to learn to shoot it. And so when we opened up that three-point line, it took a while because girls weren't good at using their lower body. And if you don't use your lower body as a female, you don't get... The, the strength to get the ball up to that three-point shot. So I think we've gotten better and better at teaching it and coaching it, and the girls have gotten significantly better at shooting it. So it, you're right. It opens the inside of the women's game, which is important because otherwise they pack it in, and yeah. because there's no dunk, then you know your, your post kids just get swung. So... If you don't have an inside-outside attack in both men's and women's, you're not going to be successful. You've got to be able yep. to, to pull the ball outside and, and score effectively there, but you've got to be able to pump it in and, and get that post-action as well. So the three-point shot is huge, and it's changed the game by a ton. Now, some of the other differences in the women's game and the women started with that 30-second clock back in, what was it, 1970, when we first went to a five-player game. Women used to play six-player. 
And that sixth player initially was three players on each side. We couldn't cross the middle line because God knows our hearts couldn't get up and down that court. And, and so um, we played that sixth player until 1970. And then the AAU people wanted to get the five-player game so they could compete in the Olympics. Well, we weren't in the Olympics yet, but they wanted to compete internationally. So we had a huge fight in women's basketball about going to the five-player game. <clears throat> I had just done my master's thesis on telemetry of females playing five-player to see if their hearts could handle the strenuousness of a five-player game. Put two kids <clears throat> into telemetry stuff. One of them was Melinda Fisher, who had just retired as our softball coach. Greatest softball coach, yep. Yep, she was a freshman that year. The other was Karen Ropa, who retired from Plainville uh, High School. But anyway, we showed that they could maintain over 180 beats per minute for a prolonged period of time. And we presented that to the rule committee, and that was one piece of wow. getting those rules changed. So that made a difference. Then, <clears throat> so we haven't been playing five player all that long. But when we went, the whole idea was to compete internationally. International rules have a 30 second clock. So the women had a 30 second clock from the get go. The guys didn't want to use it. So the men didn't adopt the 30 second clock until, geez, Sometime in the eighties or nineties, I think they would. Nineties. I played on. I played on the forty-five second shot clock. Yeah. 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 So. So it's taken them a while to to bring it down, to say the least. And the quarter stuff instead of the halves, that's international as well. Um, the the one thing that I think is going to happen for men and women, but it hasn't yet, in international ball. If there's a turnover in the backcourt, you can grab, grab the ball, jump out of bounds, and go with it without the official handling it. Yeah. I mean, think how that like soccer. Tempo, yeah. tempo of the game. Yeah. So I think that may be the next thing we see, but I don't know. But there are differences, and there have been reasons why those things have all developed the way they have. Why do you think women play quarters? Because of the Olympics? I think that yeah. makes, that's influenced a lot as well, yeah. yeah. Um, they were hoping, I think, when they went to the, the quarter system, of, that wasn't too awful long ago, that um, they would get better quality play and they wouldn't have quite, you know, the women's game was turning into timeout after timeout after timeout. So they were hoping that if they did that and they reduced the timeouts that coaches could take, it would it would improve the flow of the game. Yeah, I can't yeah. say I think that's happened, but um, eh, it is what it is. I don't see it going backwards. No, I don't either. Well, the men's right, game, Jill. the four-minute four timeouts, it seems like it gets like that, right? And the number of oh, timeouts in the end of the game is just like stop, 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 oh, stop. It is. Unbelievable. And with, and well, with the TV review, but the problem is you don't want a TV review like I added to Paul. Oh, wait, I didn't have one, and we lost when we were actually winning. So, bitter yeah, party of one, bitter party of one, right? Media timeouts really take away from the flow of the game. If you go to a D3 game, they don't have that. The flow yeah. of the game is great. It really is. It's easier for the kids. It's easier for the coaches. But 
needed. Somebody's got to pay the bills. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, Joe, this is where we wrap up. And so we'll give you the floor to close. It's easy. You know, you get, thanks for being on. I mean, this has been awesome. I love it. Well, thanks. I, I am thrilled you guys are covering women's basketball. Thanks for including me. I really am. I mean, we've come a long way for, for guys to really care about what's going on in women's sports. And the fact that you guys have daughters that played, I mean, they have the opportunity now for the same life lessons that, that you guys have Absolutely. when you got to play and the fun of playing the game. So I'm excited that we are where we are and it, it keeps on growing and thanks to you all. Yeah, and, and for my daughter, my wife played in high school, right, and she would have started in 81 and her dad had to be the coach. But yeah, to give ladies the opportunity to compete has just been phenomenal and from the Pembertons, we can't thank you enough. So, all right, with that, this is the end of episode 47. Thank you, Jill. It's John, hit it. Clappy, John, anything? It's not anything? Doing it. <laughs> oh, it's not. I'll clean it up, it up in post. We're supposed to have clapping, but obviously, my, you know. Sorry.